Hello, it's it's a great pleasure to welcome Professor Monica Juneja to our campus. Um, she teaches at the University of Delhi, but is currently visiting Emory for for a year. And um, uh, some of you will know her work on Mughal architecture and art, and but she's also worked on uh, paintings of French peasants and uh, edited a book on uh, uh, religious boundaries in, mm. in India in, that's coming out in German. And she has also got uh, uh <coughs> a book that's uh, being published by Permanent Black called mm. Painters and Painting in Pre-Colonial South Asia. There are lots of other books she's done. She's also the editor of the Medieval History Journal and member of the editorial collective of History Workshop in Germany. Um, and today she's going to talk to us about this very intriguing, and I might say very mm -hmm. novel uh, <laughs> topic, uh, because it's not just portraiture, mm -hmm. as Mughal quotes, but it's actually self-portraiture, mm -hmm. as we should practice in Mughal quotes. I'm personally quite excited about the topic mm -hmm. yesterday, mm -hmm. but we thank mm -hmm. you very much. So welcome. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Professor Chakravarti. I'm very happy and uh, honored to be here in Chicago. Um, this is this is the first time. Uh, actually, it's the first time I'm actually in the states for uh, for a longish period, and uh, this is uh, <coughs> work in progress. And so, I think it was um, it's very flattering to be able to present it to an audience here in Chicago, and I look forward to uh <coughs> your feedback. Um, the term self-portraiture in the title of my talk might, in spite of the inverted commas, uh, suggest the application of a Burkhartian uh, notion of the self, synonymous with the discovery of modern individualism, to a non-European pre-colonial social and cultural formation. And you might ask whether I'm not trying to extrapolate a suspiciously alien and anachronistic concept of selfhood or self-fashioning, to use a more trendy term, uh, from my observation that artists of the Mughal court chose to represent themselves in particular ways uh, within a visual practice that was regulated by a system of imperial patronage. And then the basic question, in what sense do I deploy here the English language term self-portrait, which in Western art historical parlance from where it has emerged, includes as its main defining feature the representation of physical likeness. Uh, can this conceptual term be treated as a canonical notion that operated in culturally specific ways? Do the terms tasveer, chehra khushai, manint nigari used in contemporary Mughal texts or and on the colophones of painted manuscripts transport the same cultural valences? Our received wisdom about painterly production in pre-colonial South Asia hinges on a number of dichotomies which are probably familiar to you and these together structure the ways in which this art was and still uh, continues to be written about oppositions such as between the sacred and profane, historical consciousness and timeless tradition, between naturalistic and iconic idioms of representation, between refinement and chromatic excess, and of course the well-worn opposition between the artist as anonymous artisan imprisoned within the twin cages of patronage and caste, whose skill lay in painterly virtuosity 
as opposed to the humanist ideal of the artist as creative individual who enjoyed control over the means of representation. It's not my intention here to trace the emergence and history of this narrative, which was part of the disciplinary uh, formation of art history of pre-modern South Asia. I have done this elsewhere and attempted to unravel some of the strands of this entangled history that spanned Europe and its colonies and was imbricated in several issues and historical configurations, such as practices of collecting and viewing objects that came to be canonized as art, the nexus between art history and civilizational status, the museum as public space, and so on. These configurations took shape at many locations over the space of a century and a half since the European Enlightenment and have furnished a set of conceptual categories with which we approach and communicate about art. Suffice to observe here that at a historical juncture when European avant-garde trends from post-impressionism to cubism and surrealism celebrated the revolt against figurative practices that made up the humanist canon, one strain of art history exported this canon and elevated its values to a central aesthetic criterion by which visual practices outside of Europe came to be judged. My talk today, which is part of work in progress, takes issue with this narrative by drawing our attention to one particular phenomenon. It focuses on the way artists at the Mughal courts chose to portray themselves within the space of painted works commissioned by their powerful patrons. I use this practice to problematize a number of issues which cluster around it. My presentation will examine notions of authorship and agency within a regulated system of pictorial production. In addition, it puts forward a view of visual practice as a participant in entangled or connected histories of the early modern world. I look at visual representation as a field that was multipolar rather than as one constituted through an opposition between Europe and South Asia. Artists at the Mughal court engaged with and worked their way through multiple regimes of visuality. These emanated from the Central Asian lands, especially Safavid Iran, Ottoman Turkey, North and South Europe, as well as a host of regions within the Indian subcontinent. In several of these pictorial traditions, artists portrayed themselves within their painted works as physical likeness in various deg varying degrees or in more mediated and indirect ways. Such an act was embedded in many cultural contexts of the 16th and 17th centuries, in worlds that were coeval at times, interlinked. In other words, they lived the same historical moment, though under different constellations. By taking a look at a few such moments of self-portraiture, I hope to problematize how Mughal court artists negotiated codes and practices within and across cultures in ways that went beyond concepts such as influence or transfer, which historians of art and culture continue to be rather fond of. Now to come to the main subject. Mughal self-portraits involve invariably a positioning of the artist within the field of artistic production. They translate in specific and varying ways the agency of the artist and they place this in relation to the authority of the patron. Contemporary text sources describe the patron as the fount of all creativity, one who through his special authority and connoisseurship brings artistic production and beauty seen as a value in its own right into being. 
Yet let us take a closer look at the workings of these relationships. The widely held vision of the painter in pre-colonial South Asia transmitted by earlier histories of artistic production, which characterized him as a nameless craftsman, has now lost some of its tenacity as research during the past years has succeeded in unearthing the names of a large number of artists in deciphering their signatures and culling facts about their employment from inscriptions. Thanks to the painstaking research, for example, of the Aligarh scholar S.P. Varma, we now have a lexicon-like work compiling names, dates, and commissions of Mughal painters. And yet we know, yet what we know of the artist continues to remain palpably meager. There is hardly any systematic or detailed biographies of artists that have come down. When court chroniclers speak of artists, it is invariably through the voice of the patron. And as opposed to Safavid Iran, albums of paintings in Mughal India were not prefaced by histories of painters and paintings and calligraphy, which were laid down in the form of the biographies of the artist. But let's see, at, let's look at what we do have. For instance, the chronicler Abul Fazl projects a vision of the Mughal emperor as a bridge between the spiritual and material worlds, as the force best able to grasp the relationship between inward and outward form. Imperial patronage of painting hinged on this preoccupation with understanding the role of the imagination in apprehending, quote unquote, that which is without form. The commissioning of images was a way of bringing out the external or physical qualities of an object and its inner or hidden meaning. Further, Abul Fazl sought to chart a way out of the tension that prevailed between the court and the representatives of Islamic orthodoxy by attributing to the Emperor Akbar the following statement about the painted image. Quote, it appears to me that as if a painter had quite a peculiar means of recognizing God. For a painter in sketching anything that has life and in devising its limbs one after the other must come to feel that he can bestow individuality upon his work and is thus forced to think of God, the giver of life, and will thus increase in knowledge." Unquote. Such a stance at this was at the same time more than simply a way of getting around the interdictions of the orthodoxy. It postulated the act of creating as well as of viewing a work of art as parallel or as akin to a mystical experience. Manuscripts and album paintings were indeed treated as precious objects embodying an ideal of beauty per se. They had extremely ornate bindings and frontispieces which were meant to be viewed in solitude at close and intimate range, demanding intense concentration and imbuing the act of viewing with devotional flavor. The patron alone comes to stand as a force behind the creation of beauty and spiritual value. So I'll just sort of go through this rather rapidly that, you know, Abul Fazl, in a sense, he tells us about how the imperial workshops were organized and the kind of supervision and this monthly salaries that were and rewards that were given to the painters. We are told that painters were of Hindu as well as Muslim origin, came from the regions of the subcontinent as well as from Iran. And by the end of the 16th century, he says that more than 100 persons have reached the stage of master and gained fame. And there are numerous who are near to reaching the state or as halfway there. The master artist or ustad, it would seem, controlled the workshop with an iron hand. The teams who worked under his supervision included those who drew the outline, tara, painted the faces, chehra khushai, excelled at coloring, painted portraits, and so on. Abul Fazl's account suggests that competition among artists must have been fierce. 
At the same time, he draws our attention to the existence of hierarchical tussles between calligraphers and painters. The former held a higher social standing and were awarded more prestigious uh, titles and rewards, for the art of writing was considered more elevated than painting. Both painters and calligraphers were part of an imperial service group, received salaries like other employees. In addition, had high-sounding titles, Nadir al-Zaman, rarity of this age, or Zareen Kalam, the golden pen conferred upon them. Their signatures were found on the colophons of paintings, where also the division of labor involved in the production of a painted work, as described above, was spelled out. At times, the margin of a manuscript visually repu re reproduced the tasks involved in its production, from the preparation of the paper to the final burnishing with golden agate. I've just sh shown you one uh, example. This is uh, <coughs> not a very visible thing, but you see the various tasks from the top right, the burnishing of the paper uh, to the stamping of uh, <coughs> the designs onto the leather cover, the sizing of the folios. Uh, you know, woodworker sawing a stand for a manuscript, uh, then the preparation of gold leaf, and finally this here, which I've sort of blown up, is the calligrapher at work. Under Akbar's successor, Jahangir, painterly production was more than ever associated with the eye of the connoisseur and the passion of the collector, rolled which rolls with the patron arrogated to himself. In his memoirs, Jahangir speaks with enthusiasm of the close connection the bonds of service that tied painters to the court and the limitless favours, as he calls it, showed by the emperor to those whose talent he discovered and nurtured. He even refers to one of them, Abul Hassan, as Khan Azad, meaning born in the household, and describes how painters were always by his side wherever and whenever he travelled. Jahangir's pride in his painters is inseparable from pride in his own connoisseurship and artistic judgment. This is a uh, you know, famous quote where he says, I derive such enjoyment from painting and have such expertise in judging it that even without the artist's name being mentioned, no work of past or present masters can be shown to me that I do not instantly recognize who did it. Even if it is a scene of several figures and each face is by a different master, I can tell who did which face. If in a single painting different persons have done the eyes and eyebrows, I can determine who drew the face and who made the eyes and eyebrows. The connoisseurship of the patron in this sense came to be pitted against the skill of the artist. This became especially evident when artists were asked to copy European works, a practice that drew its impulse partly from the magnetic pull exercised by culturally alien visual practices. Mimesis, far from being an inferior mode, became the basis of knowledge about the other. Artists, and it was also part of an older tradition of responding to models by copying them. Artists made several copies of the same painting, from which the patron was meant to tell the original from the copies. Through mimetic acts, the copy acquired power of the original. It came to be a site to test the connoisseurship of the patron, as well as opened a way to empowering the artist. A painter's presence was not suggested by the stroke of the brush, for the technique of polishing a final painting to bring the entire surface together meant that the pigment surface did not break down in a series of visible brush strokes, gestural traces that constituted the individual maniera of an artist in the sense that Vasari had used the term. Rather, as Jahangir's description of his skills as a connoisseur suggests, the author's presence was read through characteristic and repeated elements, such as eyebrow inflections, the rendering of hands, ears, 
uh, <coughs> draperies, folds or through aspects of drawing, tara, architectural features and overall compositions, especially in scenes populated by large numbers of people, animals and buildings. So, it is a system which fostered competitiveness amongst painters who constantly vied with each other to kindle the artist's interest in their work. <coughs> Interestingly, the Akhlaq e Nasiri, a compendium of rules and conducts, uses an image of the Mughal Kitab Khana showing uh, painters and calligraphers at work as an illustration of the power of the patron. This is apparent in the bird's eye perspective the use of particular architectural language such as the, this, the cross axial uh, water courses here, the Chahar Bagh uh, that stands for the rivers of paradise uh, and all of this is, uh, is, is redolent with imperial symbolism. The placing and treatment of individuals also visualizes hierarchies you know, between the master and the scribe, the master artist and uh, the two painters this this group here uh, <coughs> under his charge then the paper maker <coughs> uh, and finally all the attendants all confirm this as a view uh, from the highest echelon representing a world of ordered relationships now rank and social positioning and court culture and the rela relationships emanating from them represented more than simply differences of power and wealth they invariably transported a notion of ethical value the self-description of the artist uh, was cast in self-abnegation and humility in the face of his powerful patron. The same artist whom the emperor designated as wonder of the world would in his inscription cast himself as Gulam, slave, Banda e Darga, servant of the exalted house, Kamatarin, the lowest, or Khak e Pa, the dust of the patron's feet, and so on. These were epithets which were widely used even by high-ranking courtiers. But the search for visual equivalence of these epithets had led to the emergence in Mughal art of a, a repertoire of synoptic forms, gestures and bodily postures in which the relation between artist and patron came to be cast. Let us look at this particular painting. This is a self-portrait of the artist Keshav Das. Uh, <coughs> shows you a young man simply dressed, wearing a turban according to the style of Akbar's time. He holds a coconut in both his hands in a gesture of devotional offering, while under his right arm he clasps a red bound album of folio, which is a product of his trade, the sign of an identity as in his painter. He also wears a sacred thread, I don't know if this is here visible on this, uh, which is the prerogative of the twice born castes among the Hindus. The Artist's po uh, portrayal of his person presents him in a posture of ostentatious humility, which is repeated in an another self-portrait done much later in his life, in 1589, showing the painter as an old, bent, humble, submissive, holding a petition apparently addressed to his patron Akbar in, in Devanagari script. The exaggerated humility acquires a somewhat disturbing edge through the presence of an imperial guard and in this particular reproduction is only one arm of his here is and hand is visible who gestures towards him threateningly preventing him access to the emperor. Now this particular use of uh, uh, posture and body language to translate submission and humility seems to be a prevalent 
visual trope for it marked the portrayal of courtiers as well. There is indeed some similarity though less exaggerated between a messenger in the painting from the Akbar Nama done by the same painting who is a painter whose self portrait we saw. And here the news of Jahangi's birth is being brought to Akbar by this uh, messenger here who stands barefoot uh, on the step of the throne bearing a missive informing the emperor of the birth of her heir. There are similarities of posture and gesture though less marked. The same sensitive treatment of hands, the bare feet in all three paintings and interestingly again both the petitions and here again the message are in Devanagari although Persian was the language of the court and this uh, is another feature which gives the individual stamp of the artist. I want to look at one more painting uh, from a regional court which was done uh, by an artist called Nain Sukh in the uh, <coughs> um, court of Guler and this artist's biography has been researched by the historian B. N. Goswami and Goswami has shown that there existed a close bond between the patron and his artist uh, and a relationship which according to Goswami was more relaxed and less formal than those existing in the Mughal court. Yet in the painting, the artist has resorted to this conventional visual rhetoric while portraying himself within the same compositional space as his patron. Yet this sharing of space is without ambivalence as he has placed himself behind the throne facing the back of his patron, body bent at the waist, hands humbly folded and neck <coughs> craned forward to hear a remark about his work which the Raja holds and appears to be discussing with his courtiers. Now let us return to the Mughal court and I want to just show, go, go through quickly uh, a couple of paintings to show you know where this you know what uh, how this visual rhetoric which I have been talking about was formed and I want to go back to the earliest painters who came from Safavid Iran and the two of these were Mir Sayyid Ali and his father Mir Musavir. And as we move from the work of one, the, the son to the father uh, in the reverse direction, we find a perceptible shift in expressive forms. Now, this is the uh, <coughs> uh, an earliest drawing of Mir Sayyid Ali, uh, <coughs> who um, entered the Mughal service uh, together with the Mughal emperor Humayun when he migrated back from Iran. Uh, and this is uh, it's a drawing mounted on uh, you know on a board. Uh, it was originally a single folio in a patchwork uh, album. It shows a young man seated on his heels, holding up a slim volume of horizontal format. And let's look at some of this in detail. You know, there's a single line in Persian, and the uh, translation reads, uh, you know, the first line, it's Gulam uh, Hazrat Isha, meaning the slave of His Majesty the Shah, Sayyid Ali, the son of Sayyid Muhammad. It could have been a frontispiece to a murakka framed as an offering to uh, to the king and here is this you know this young scribe this unusual formulation of his signature datable to uh, 1540s. The handling of the face also is very much still in the Iranian idiom uh, because uh, <coughs> you know show using this calligraphic flow of strokes and uh, this light arched eyebrows the white of the eyes uh, you know extends above the black pupils and therefore evoking this kind of mystical or ecstatic wonder which is another feature in the art of Sayyid Ali. The next one also by the same artist which he does when he is in India uh, and it shows again this youthful reader bent forward to look at a manuscript set on a wooden lectern. 
the miniature is richer in detail, the effects are enhanced by colouring, yet the similarities with the drawing are apparent in the treatment of the face and the pursed lips and the eyes staring in wonder. Uh, and, and I won't go into too much detail because I want to come to the more important <laughs> images that I am looking at. What is interesting here is the artist's signature on uh, this image, it is on that wooden tablet lying across the car uh, carpet and I am using the translation of this Iranian scholar Melikyan Shirvani who who has translated the stop of this um, tablet is written uh, the, the uh, verse, the master's tyranny is better than the father's fondness and on the bottom uh, is uh, the <coughs> signature of the artist saying that this is this is Sayyid Ali Nadir ul Mulk was the title which Humayun gave him and Humayun Shahi is his own epithet saying in the state in the service of Humayun. Now, the couplet about the master's tyranny was written as an autobiographical illusion and at the same time refers to his training as an artist. The painter refers to his father who was also the master artist under whom he trained and with a certain irony thanks his father for being a tyrannical master. The scroll of white uh, paper lying across the grass and rug has no precedent in Iranian painting. It reappears in the Indian setting as a petition in later works. In indeed, we see it in this third self-portrait of this early phase which is one of the same illustrious father and strict master whom uh, Sayyid Ali refers to, Mir Musavir. <coughs> now here we see the painting of a bespectacled artist, old, seated on his heels, bending forward, unrolling a scroll of a similar type. Interestingly, this work, though painted by an Iranian artist of an older generation, is rendered much more in a local North Indian idiom that was now taking root at the Mughal court, shedding off Iranian strains. The costume is much more pronouncedly North Indian, in, includes the turban style, the long double-breasted jama, uh, fashionable amongst North Indian elites. Above all, it is the handling of the facial features which have moved away from Iranian modes. They are more individualized, greater attention has been paid to detail than to florid calligraphic sweep. The subject wears glasses that were a mark of the painter's uh, profession. He holds a petition to Emperor Humayun and his text has been dis deciphered despite the blanks where the arm has covered the text. Mir Musavir identifies himself as the sitter and author and as slave, Ghulam, says he was born in royal service, has been long in royal office. Now his journey is concluding. He hopes he will re-enter royal service. In other words, the artist refers to his position in the Safavid court and then to his travels to Hindustan following his son and submits a request to be taken into service through a portrait of himself reading a petition. So this humility and submission find expression not only in the language of the petition or in the bodily posture but also through the adoption of a visual idiom that was acquiring a new legitimacy as a canonical language in the artistic practice of the Mughal court. Okay, now while these early portraits as we have looked at give us a glimpse into the formation of a standard visual rhetoric built into the artist's self-representation then which took on then more pronounced forms of self-abnegation as we saw in the portraits of Keshudas, I now like to look at images that break beyond the bounds of this rhetoric 
and use it to introduce a note of polyvalence and at times dis of discord within a rigidly codified system of artistic production. Let us first take a look at this miniature by the uh, sorry, this is uh, artist Daulat, which carries the inscription on the colophons, the scribe Abdur Rahman and the painter Daulat. This too, like the painting from the Akhlaq in Nasri, takes us into the heart of the Mughal Kitab Khana. Though the statement it makes is more multi-layered than that of the Akhlaq miniature. An inscription outside of the picture frame informs us that this page was part of the manuscript of the Khamsa by the poet Nizami. The Emperor Jahangir commissioned his painter Daulat to record a moment in the creation of this manuscript testifying once more to the agency of the patron in bringing this work of art into being. Yet in its treatment by the artist, the painting manages to suggest an overlap of more than a single form of agency. The work illustrates the production of manuscripts as a joint activity between painter and calligrapher. On the surface of the work is inscribed the skill of each of the persons we see because it is both calligraphy and painted image. It is a representation which transmits the absorption of the two individuals it portrays in their respective activities. It describes the tools and materials of their work, also its products in the form of a bound manuscript. All of these are caringly placed across the picture plane <coughs> as distinct visual signs. Even as a, at a first glance, the image succeeds in conferring great dignity on the individuals it portrays. We see in the treatment of individual physiognomies, uh, <coughs> enormous care has been taken to record differences in appearance, dress, the fine white muslin material of the painter's jama, the details of the turban styles, and yet this is a non-hierarchical relationship between painter and calligrapher. Setting and space suggest a baldashin pavilion with uh, uh, slightly raised plinth constructed very much in the idiom of imperial architecture whose details the image lovingly dwells on. The slender pillar, the painted niches with the wine carafe and jars symbolizing paradise. The dado panel framed by a golden border inscribed with calligraphy. Each of these details seems to transfer to the persons engaged in pictorial production the substance of prestige contained within the language of architecture. I now turn to two further moments within this genre to suggest that for all its rhetoric of subordination, the genre had a subversive potential. One way that allowed artists to tap that potential was a conscious and intensive engagement and translation of artistic idioms that were rooted in different cultural contexts. This form of entanglement created a field that had the potential to destabilize the social ordering of visual practice as it operated in the 16th and early 17th centuries. The first of these moments is articulated within a painting which we I think all know rather well though we hardly come across it as being designated in part as a self-portrait of the artist. This is the paint, sorry. I am talking about. Now, we are more familiar with this as an oft reproduced portrait of the Emperor Jahangir, which the painter Bichitra did for the manuscript of the Jahangir Nama. In fact, it uh, adorns the splendid cover of Vila Taxton's translation of the Jahangir Nama, and from there has come to be inscribed in our visual memory. Now, Jahangir has been portrayed seated on an hourglass throne while he offers a book to a Sufi, Sheikh Hassan Chishti 
ignoring the other more worldly figures placed in a descending row on the left side of uh, uh, the picture space. These are the Ottoman uh, uh, Sultan of Turkey, King James I of England and interestingly the painter of this miniature Bichitra who positions his self portrait at the end of this line of kings referring thereby to his symbolic role as the king of the arts. The presence of the two foreign rulers, the Ottoman Sultan stands uh, with you know, the hand, hands folded in a gesture of humility. This, the presence of him and James the, um, first refers uh, you know, less to a contemporary diplomatic relationship than on a mythical claim of the Mughal ruler to universal kingship, where powerful rulers from across the world attended his court. As in the case of Mughal written histories, artists too sought to claim quote unquote authenticity for their representations through recourse to so called empirical methods. Bichitra's portrayal of the Ottoman and English kings drew upon contemporary visual documents. Such a concern for exactitude could apparently coincide with the construction of historical event as a notion within which desire, imagination, and history came to overlap. The seated figure of Jahangir is framed by this enormous refulgent aureole that embodies both the sun and the crescent moon and so fixes the event within a moment of the eternal presence. I have discussed the workings of the symbol and its relationship to literary references at some length elsewhere. The radiance of the sun and moon aureole framing the persona of the enthroned ruler spells a notion of infinite time which however in this image exists in a state of content a state of tension with a competing notion of temporality symbolized by the hourglass an object drawn from a christian cultural context transformed into an insignia of mughal universal kingship and relocated within the space of this extraordinary image its original meanings however continue to shimmer through the dense accoutrements of a pax mogolica for the artist has deployed the language of naturalistic representation to draw our attention to the sands of time which have almost run out. In a gesture as if to exorcise the inexorable flow of time, the two cupids inscribe directly on the hourglass the words, O Shah, may the span of your life be thousand years. Now, a comparison of this representation with a more or less contemporaneous portrait of Jahangir embracing his political opponent Shah Abbas renders the inbuilt tension more evident. Once more through the selective and conscious use of naturalistic techniques acquired through copying European paintings. Now this image shows the emperor still in possession of a powerful physique robust and well built. Bichitra on the other hand sorry, presents us uh, a considerably more aged and haggard looking Jahangir as if consciously registering the ravages of time on his body. The dissonance is underlined by the gesture of the angels anxiously inscribing their message on the hourglass and this gets further accentuated by the strange behavior of the other two angels here on top, uh, these two, uh, <coughs> who refuse to perform the, the, the functions normatively assigned to them in Mughal painting, that is the function of bearing the
the insignia of royalty as seen in several examples. Let me show in for example, in this one where the angels carry the crown, uh, span the chain of justice here or supply the emperor with arrows so that he can shoot the allegorical uh, image uh, uh, of poverty. Now, in this painting, the angels fly away from rather than towards the center of the picture space. One of them hides its face while the other carries a broken arrow and bow now rendered useless. The broken arrow suggests the link to another contemporary North European motive in which the Christian, in in Christian iconography was symbolized a subjugated religion, especially in the representations of ecclesia and the synagogue. Jahangir in fact did possess a variant of this motive engraved on an emerald seal as the memoirs of Thomas Rowe record. The emperor himself is shown engaged, this is a detail, in the concrete action of gifting a book to a Sufi, though his trance-like gaze is directed outward to infinity. The Sufi too, who respectfully accepts the book, not with outstretched hands, but with part of his clothing, uh, as prescribed by ceremonial etiquette, looks upwards, though not meeting the emperor's gaze. Further dissonance is generated by placing these four figures in vertical succession along the left hand margin. Now to grasp the significance of such a placing, the, uh, the particularities of margins in the narrative and compositional structure of Mughal paintings needs to be understood. These often in the form of elaborate multiple borders termed harshias were intended to frame the vision of the beholder to contain, orient and structure the experience of looking at and absorbing an image like in this particular portrait of Shah Jahan enthroned. This is all about framing vision, you know access to the distant motionless profile of the emperor is gained by traversing several frames, you know a broad harshia composed of this trellis of uh, uh, fla uh, uh, <coughs> flowers and birds succeeded by these na three narrow margins uh, where the two outer frames in gold contain a border and finally the slender pillars of the throne baldashin. The highly ornamental margins of Mughal paintings were made up not only of floral and calligraphic elements, but also of figures, human, animal, often of symbolic significance. The borders appear to be in comforting harmony with the image they frame. The margins serve to fix the gaze onto center, while the laws of formal symmetry ensure the overall stability of the representation and thereby the efficacy of its persuasive power. And finally, the margin also became the space of the self-inscription of the artist, the place where his, he signed his name. Could it also then become the space from which the stability of that which was contained in the frame be questioned? And now I actually come back to the, to the artist who has created all these various dissonances. Now, Bichitra's creation of this vertical margin an unacknowledged and partial hashia made up of four figures along one edge of the painting would appear to affect a disruption of the normative symmetry of an image firmly structured along a central axis. By its very presence, asymmetry renders visible a series of tensions between political power and religious authority, between competing imperial powers and ends up undermining the harmony of a utopian Pax Mobolica. Now this last and smallest of the four figures making up the left margin of the work is the painter himself, the person lowest in the social and religious hierarchy of those portrayed in the painting. 
He displays a product of his metier, a painting showing two horses and an elephant. And by placing himself in the line of kings, can proclaim his own status as symbolic king of the arts. The artist, in addition, has put his signature to the painting on the top of this little stand, supported by a two-headed <coughs> bearded figure at the foot of the throne. Its position just below the throne, let me just show you where it is here, uh, suggests that it served as a step to reach the high throne platform. The gesture of placing his name at the feet of his patron would immediately be read as a visualization of this trope where artists ca cast themselves as kak epa, the dust at the feet of their patron. Yet at the same time, Bichitra locates his persona at the lowest edge of the image, an unusual instance of a painter in the strictly regulated system seeking to share the pictorial space of his patron. The picture, the framed picture he holds up may be read as a reference to his art, both as creation and at the same time as salaried activity. An elephant stood for a reward which painters often got in the service of the Mughal court. They were paid as foot soldiers. Vision then comes to rest on a mundane transaction between artist and patron for painted mythologies. A central prerequisite of viewing as a sacral vision, as darshan, a notion that the Mughals incorporated through court ritual and into their visual representations, was the invisibility of the artist, the effacing of all traces of his painterly activity. By making his presence visible, the artist transforms vision into an act of representation and from the point where the viewer becomes a participant in the process through which the vision comes into being, the dissolution of that vision is already underway. Now the final painting uh, I'd like to talk about and this is probably the most unusual and most controversial of all the images we have looked at while I designated as a particular and unique moment in self-portraiture. And this has caused some eyebrows to go up because it brings us to the central question of what do we in the context of pre-colonial South Asia call a self-portrait. But let's first look at the painting and the basic information about it. This is a work of the artist Farooq Beg, done in the year 1615 when he was 70 years old. Now there is a difference of opinion amongst art historians. I mean the f eminent art historian of Jahangir's art, Ashok Kumar Das, together with Robert Skelton, they generally view this as a portrait of an old Sufi which emerged through copying a European engraving. Stuart Carey Welch, on the other hand, called it in one of his exhibition catalogues a self-portrait without giving the reasons for it and Das and Skelton and the others dismissed this outright and C Carrie Welch never responded to that charge. This was some years ago. Now this raises the issue as to whether we are looking for the notion of physical likeness as evidence of quote unquote portraiture or whether the artist's reflection about himself, his biography and above all the way he reflects upon his art formed one matrix of this complex image, often in indirect and mediated kinds of ways. These components need to be teased out, not only from textual references, but also from the number of visual signs located within the painting itself. And today I'll concentrate on the visual. 
and which could I would like to suggest make it into an overlapping portrait wherein the person of the artist fuses with the Sufi whose figure in turn was drawn from a representation of a Christian saint. Indeed, this image has grown out of multiple entanglements and crossings of traditions and practices, and some of these negotiations need to be looked at closely. Let us begin with the inception of the work itself. It is an image born out of an impulse generated by the work of a Flemish artist, Martin de Foss. The work was entitled Dolor, meaning pain, in this case, spiritual pain, which in turn was a homage to Albrecht Dürer's work, St. Jerome, in his study. Farouk Beg was familiar with divorce through an engraving by Raphael Sadala called Dolor, which had made its way to the Indian subcontinent from Antwerp, a center of printing where a large number of works of Italian, Flemish and North European artists arrived at the courts of North India. The Mughal artist had also access to some of Dürer's engravings. Saint Jerome in his study, De Heilige Hieronymus, as it was called in Gehois, which represented the contemplative life of a Christian saint, and Melancholia, that stood for the rational and imaginative world of the arts and the sciences. We, ha we have then an engagement with multiple sources in which the biography of the artist plays a deciding role. Let me just come back to this. Now, Farooq Beg's life history too offers an instance of cultural entanglement. He migrated from Central Asia to North India. His early life as a painter was spent in Shiraz and Khorasan and then in Kabul. And in 1585, he was employed by the Emperor Akbar as a member of the Imperial Workshop of Painters. The arrival of European works of art at the Mughal court meant that the Persianized idiom practiced by Farooq Beg declined in importance and we've seen a response to this changing canon in Mir Musavvi's representation of himself as petitioner to the Mughal emperor. It was at this juncture that Farooq Beg migrated further south in search of new patrons. He spent many years at the court of the Sultan of Bijapur and returned in 1609 on the invitation of Akbar's successor Jahangir to the Mughal court of Agra. This painting, possibly his last work, portrays at one more apparent level of meaning a Sufi. And this was in continuation of a North Indian convention of painting holy men. So it was a simple step then to convert the Christian Saint Jerome into a Muslim Sufi. But by seeking to merge the person with the Sufi, of the Sufi with that of himself as artist, Farooq Beg introduces an additional layer of meaning. And he does this not only by textual references, but by actually placing visual references to his biography and activity as a painter across the picture field. The miniature album of paintings, you know, with the red and gold lacquer binding, we saw a similar album held by Keshu Das under his arm. The pair of spectacles, which was a motif frequently deployed by artists and at times calligraphers as a signature of their profession. This motif of the cat stocking a puddle of spilt milk, this was taken from the Sadala engraving, but it takes on in this painting an added meaning for it refers to one of the important material dimensions of an artist's activity. The cat's hair was a cherished material out of which the finest paint brushes, sometimes of a single hair, the ek bal kalam, was made. 
and such a merging of material and metaphysical aspects of art, this functions as a trope in North Indian painting. We see it again and again as a hallmark of the self-representation of artists and calligraphers, as we've seen also in earlier portrayals of artists with the you know tools and materials of their work placed distinctly across the picture space. In fact, the power of art, you know, as in whatever little theoretical writing that we have, was a power wielded by the artist alone, one in fact which the patron did not share because it was considered to lie in the radical transformation of the earthly into the ethereal, into the skilled use of material substances to create immaterial beauty. And contemporary texts often drew a parallel between the in this creative process, the way the Sufi used bodily experience to reach God. Now, there are further references to the artist's biography and stage in life, which are fused with Quranic symbols. The suggestion of a walled garden evokes the image of paradise, as also do the wine carafes that were clearly recognizable form of funereal imagery, also form in the walls of Mausolea. The purplish glow of the stones on this wall is another reference to Bijapur and a reference which is also on the other side of the, you know, the colophon of the painting where Farooq Beg spent many years of his life. It echoes the colours that stones and sacred tombs in Bijapur took on in the late afternoon light and this was a favourite trope of Deccani painters like we see in this particular painting. The animals in um, the painting are partly taken from the Vos and the Dura painting, such as the sleeping dog, an animal associated both with erudition and mel melancholy. On the other hand, the motif of the goat suckling its young recurs in many variants in Mughal painting to point to the cycles of life and changing generations, a reference against the artist's own advanced stage in life and awareness of having to make way for newer generations. But beyond appropriating and relocating symbols and motifs, Farooq Beg enters into a conscious dialogue with the works of Dura and the Foss. Um, Dura's extraordinary artistic achievement lay in the way he used the engraver's burin or the graphic medium to recreate material textures, as we see on <coughs> the right, you know, the texture of the wooden planks of the walled surface of the animal fur, as we so see in this one, of organic greenery. Now, Farooq Peg's response follows the pattern of, uh, you know, poetic mode of Im improvisation in Indo-Persian literary traditions. In fact, this was um, uh, quite a practice in in Iran from where he came where you know you had a majlis where people actually responded to paintings which they saw and he respond he responds here not through the majlis but through his own painted work uh, <coughs> he translates Dura's particular mode of rendering texture into paint uh, 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 you know the graphic medium into paint and color which he does using the single head brush he, he, this he does, you know, um, uh, in his treatment of animal skins. Now, what is not visible in this digital reproduction of the painting is the way he uses gold, where each hair of the dog, for example, was highlighted by a fleeting gold <coughs> stroke. We see also this dialogue with uh, rep new representational practices in the brushwork on the wicker chair or in the graining, you know, of the wood panels. <coughs> of the desk and the cabinet and above all in the subtle and 
<coughs> mottled painterliness of the stones, tree and foliage. The billowing sleeves and cuffs and swelling folds of the Sufi painter's robe create a connection with Dura's melancholia, however without reproducing the optical turbulence that they articulate. No, let me just, sorry, go back to this painting. Now, this conscious process of engagement and negotiation between different images and painterly traditions creates a connecting zone between different structures of representation and their signifying processes. So that this double portrait acquires different layers of meaning. Indeed, re the relocation of motives or symbolic elements through mimesis creates a surplus of meaning. By implying that a single interpretation is no longer authoritative, it opens up multiple possibilities of re reading an image that becomes polyvocal. The painter as Sufi gets immediately embedded in the way visual art, especially painting, was conceptualized in Islamic code cultures, that is, it was perceived as being akin to a mystical activity. <coughs> Let me just and this understanding gets overlaid by another layer that engages with Dura, which embodies the idea of the artist as creator or symbol of loneliness and saturnal melancholy. It introduces an idea that has a disruptive potential <coughs> in a system of artistic production regulated by the norms of patronage. Now, let us towards the end just once more return to Dura's Hieronymus Ingaus. While Dürer organizes this space strictly adhering to the Albertian perspective, Farouk Beg rejects this principle. His portrait gestures for a moment in the direction of the principle separating the inner and outer space that marked the Saint Jerome portraits in the several variants as we saw. Here he, he su uh, suggests a separation barely by this extension of this wall from one end to the other of the painted space, but after having done so, he discards it in favor of a wondrous and highly ambiguous space traversed by this fantastic, infinitely expanding tree populated by colorful birds that enter into the lonely space of the artist Sufi and subjects it to a different sense of spatial order. The tree with its bright green, red and ye yellow cabbage-like leafy shapes uh, <coughs> appears to embody pure artistic fantasy, rejecting as it does the concern for botanical exactitude that had become a norm in Mughal representations of plant and animal life. You know, burgeoning forms that articulated arboreal principles of growth have a history going back to many regional practices, including Deccani painting, where Farooq Beg had experimented with such forms like in this one. <coughs> Artists at the Mughal court, however, had veered to a more naturalistic anthropocentric idiom as we see here. Now Farooq Beg's rejection of this was, which was also a rejection of the uh, <coughs> perspectival organization of pictorial space perfected by Dura points to a search for perceptions beyond those centered on the retina. Okay, so now I will sum up. Now this particular moment of portraying the self even though it is in very indirect and mediated ways can be embedded in many different contexts. 
it can at the historiographical level be used as a step towards dismantling binaries such as between historical consciousness and timeless traditions between the self-effacing anonymous painter and the artist as individual and many others that have been posited between Western and non-Western societies in the transition to modernity as I suggested at the outset of this presentation. The inquiry could be further pushed in a direction to look at the ways in which visual practice at the Mughal court was structured by social relationships at different levels and issues of power they hinged on. This would include directing our attention to the practice and understandings of authorship in Mughal art or at the tense relationship between the practice of art and the injunctions of Muslim orthodoxy or at relationships between patron and artist or those within the workshops where calligraphers and painters worked together but within the framework of a hierarchical relationship that ascribed greater value, truth value to the written word. Works of art that place the agency of the artist center stage through the act of self-portraiture but also through the use of different visual codes, the familiar and the culturally alien, juxtaposed without losing their distinctiveness to, to produce spatial disjuncture and a form of aesthetic wonder, wondrousness as we saw in this last painting, all introduce a sense of ontological instability within an image playing as they do, at times ironically, as in the case of Bichitra, on issues of artifice, representation, ideal and reality. The hand of the artist, whose invisibility is a condition of image as darshan, is now that to what our attention is being drawn, to the role of the artist as mediating between image and reality, as endowing the image with the power to lay down the condition of its reception. Finally, such a case study takes us into the heart of issues that make up braided histories. By drawing out the tensions that exist between different notions of authorship, modern and pre-modern, rooted in multiple settings and constellations, is it possible then to come closer to a 16th and 17th century notion of agency and in the visual cultures of North Indian courts? What is the locus of authorship that we are trying to recover? The processes of negotiating visual codes we observed here would seem to go beyond what is usually designated as cultural transfer, because transfer suggests that a, that a set of ideas and symbols tra travel from one semantic system into another, thereby implying two autonomous cultural units. And what we observed here is how boundaries between cultures and artistic traditions shift by creating a zone of connectedness between them, and in the process reconstituting the units within which these transactions and transfers occur. Perhaps it would make more sense to look at works of art less as static carriers of meaning and more as a field where different cultural codes, the familiar and the alien, are negotiated and in the process push the representational system to its edges and possibly to new levels of creativity. To be able to, uh, to view a work of art as a field of encounter, negotiation and perhaps subversion each one can be creative in its own way, we require a narrative framework, and this is a larger issue, uh, that would make place for cultural plurality without turning it into another master narrative. This would call for rethinking our conceptual vocabulary, beginning with our notion of art itself, which is often opposed to the artifact, to authorship, portraiture, and the like, to be able to create a matrix within which the practice of both Western and non-Western art could be located that would hopefully respond to the challenge of different traditions of connoisseurship, authorship, canons, and display. Thank you very much. <laughs>